welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 5.2, First Nephi 16-22, through I Will Prepare the Way Before You. This week's guest is Brent Heaton, expert on Book of Mormon geography and the South Arabian Peninsula. All right, well, we are excited about having uh, experts come on to the podcast to talk about specific areas and, and specific aspects of the of the Book of Mormon. And today uh, we have with us uh, Brent Heaton. He's a friend of mine uh, from uh, Utah here, but he is also one of the uh, foremost uh, experts, I would say, uh, in the church on the and the area of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, and specifically as it relates to the land bountiful and Oman. And uh, so I'd like to welcome you to the uh, to the podcast. Well, thank you, Rod. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, would you, would you uh, t- tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you, know, you have a, a, a really connection to the uh, to this area. Yes, uh, many years ago, actually in 1977, my wife and I took a job over in, in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And we lived there for three years on what is now the Frankincense Trail. At the time, we weren't really sure that it was or what role that it actually played. But my interest was peaked clear back in 1977 when we would look at these trails and these ruins and everything, and we'd think, I wonder if Nephi and, <laughs> or Lehi and his family ever stopped at this well that's out here in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, and we thought, you know, it's possible it could be. There was a, a well that had lined with granite rocks and the ropes going down into the well to draw the water up were two inches deep, the, the grooves were two inches deep. Oh. So we figured that's got to be an old well. Wouldn't yes. it be neat to find out that if Lehi and his family may have stopped at that very well? And lo and behold, as things became discovered uh, years later, then it's very probable that Lehi could have stopped at that very well by a little town called Taif, Saudi Arabia. Wow. Now, you said you lived there for, how long did you live there again? Uh, three years in Taif. Uh-huh. Wow. And Taif is located uh, just to the east of Mecca, up high in the mountains. Mecca's down closer to sea level. Uh, we were up at an elevation of about five to 6,000 feet. So wow. it wasn't quite as hot up there as it would have been in the rest of the Arabian Peninsula. Can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, the, the incense trail? Uh, the incense trail, it, it's interesting. Uh, I need to start back just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, frankincense, the type, it's called Hodari frankincense, and it's grown exclusively in the Dofar region of Oman. Uh, there's other qualities of of frankincense that come from India and Africa and stuff like that. But the very best frankincense in the world comes from Salala Oman. Wow. And that uh, trade started thousands of years ago. It was used by all the three major religions, Judaism, Christianity, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, Rome, for example, I think it was the uh, Emperor Nero that in one day when his wife passed away, he burned a year's 
worth of frankincense in one day. Oh wow! Uh, but it was it was used for these big metropolitan areas where the temples were and the shrines and so forth. So the trail would actually go from Salala Oman uh, across the desert over to Yemen and then north up along the Red Sea till it hit Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, it would split and go to Cairo or it would go on around to Turkey and Greece and down into Rome. Mm -hmm. Of course, the ships were also used. Uh, there was quite a shipping uh, enterprise going. Actually, it was the Queen of Sheba. That's how she obtained her wealth, was by regulating this frankincense trade, because frankincense at that time was actually more valuable than gold. Wow, wow! So, so when the, let's uh, let's go back to the we're going back to the Book of Mormon here for a second. So, um, you know, the, we have the uh, the the family leaves Jerusalem. <coughs> it says that they travel down along the Red Sea. They uh, they send the boys back for the plates. And uh, they get the plates from Laban. They come back, and so forth. Then they then they end up continuing on, uh, because uh, I want I want to get to the part about the uh, about the land bountiful a little bit now. Uh, maybe one thing that you might have some some uh, insight into, and that is that uh, when Lehi left the Jerusalem, and then after the boys came back with the plates, one of the things he did is he offered sacrifice, and he built an altar. Has there, do you know of any? Any indications of altars being found, or or any any information about you know how far away do they have to get from Jerusalem before it's kind of like legal to build an altar or any of that kind of information? <laughs> uh, yes, it, it's interesting. One of the Jewish requirements for building an altar is that you had to be at least three days' journey away from a temple. Uh huh. Now, my personal belief is that there were several temples that they could have offered sacrifices in. And when Lehi, or when Nephi says that Lehi left uh, civilization and went into the wilderness, he went three days journey before he built an offering, yeah. or uh, excuse me, an, an altar, an altar yeah. where he made a peace offering yeah. to the Lord because of the blessings that he had received on, the, on his journey. Now, it's interesting also, if I could bring this up, when they left Jerusalem, uh, there are actually four candidates as to which trail they actually took. My personal opinion is that they probably dropped down by Ein Gedi and dropped down by the Dead Sea and then followed south through the Negev Desert mm -hmm. until they came to the top of the Red Sea, which today would be Aqaba or Eilat uh, in, in Israel. And that would have been their last uh, chance to resupply or to interact with people uh, that would have goods to give to them. And then they headed south. And can I point out one thing here in, in 1 Nephi chapter 2, mm -hmm. verse 5? He said, he came down by the borders near the shore of the Red Sea. And that's interesting in that if you could picture that in your mind, the borders or something to one side, there's the seashore, and then the Red Sea. When Lehi and his family came down in verse 5, then it talks about them uh, traveling with the borders on one side, the seashore in the middle, and then the, the Red Sea on the other side. Uh -huh. But that word uh, borders 
it's interesting in, in Arabic and in Hebrew, the word that is used there is jebel or, or gebel. And uh, it can be translated as mountains or as borders. So if we were to replace the word borders with a Semitic Mount. word jebel, then we could say he came down by the mountains near the shore of the Red Sea. And he traveled in the wilderness in the mountains, which are nearer the Red Sea. And as you come down by the seashore there, all of a sudden there's a range of mountains that block the passage along the seashore. So they had to turn inland. And that's when he says, we traveled in the borders, which are nearer the Red Sea. And if, then he could turn south again, go down through a long uh, valley or wadi and after three days journeying which would be approximately 75 miles a camel will go 25 to 30 miles a day okay. uh -huh. so that would probably be about 75 miles then lo and behold a river of water shows up shows up right in front of them <laughs> so they make their camp by the river of water uh -huh. and uh, and that's when they built the altar and made a peace offering to God. Uh, and it's interesting in, uh, oh, let's see, what is it? Verse uh, 8, uh, he says that he called the river Laman, and it emptied into the Red Sea. Well, it's interesting today, uh, that river of water and that wadi, by the way, I need to give credit here to George Potter, who yeah. was a, a yep. member George, of the church that, lived in Saudi Arabia for many years, mm -hmm. and he was actually looking for the real Mount Sinai and happened, happened to stumble onto this river of water. And he got thinking, well, maybe, I wonder if this is actually <laughs> the river uh, Laman. Yep. And so he did some testing. Using the scriptures, he drove three days coming down from Aqaba turning up into the mountains, following the long water, and it was 75 miles uh, right to where they hit the, the valley of Lemuel there. Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, I think it's also interesting that the, the Lord says that he called the, the valley uh, the, the valley of Lemuel. And he also spake unto Lemuel, Oh, that thou mightest be like unto this valley, firm, steadfast, and immovable. Well, over in that part of Arabia, if it's anywhere else, it's blowing sand. And I've always, that had always bothered me. How could we have a, a valley in sand that was firm, steadfast, and immovable? But this river Laman that was in the Wadi, which today is called Wadi Tayyabalism, has canyon walls made of granite that are 2,000 feet tall. <laughs> and right in the body of wow. that valley is the river. And so there was the valley, firm, steadfast, and immovable. And always flowing, the, the river was always flowing into the, into the, how does he say? Into the Red Sea. Uh, into the Red Sea, uh, continually flowing there uh so it, it fits perfectly and it makes sense yeah. uh and there's probably no way that and, joseph smith would have known that back in 1830 
Yeah, it's <laughs> interesting. Uh, up to this point, you know, you take the trail from Jerusalem all the way to Bountiful. It's approximately 1,700 miles. Uh -huh. In about 1878, there was a British lord that had done some research in that area, but he only covered the area that would have included the first 25% of that trail. Uh -huh. It wasn't until the, the 1900s that any other Westerner had even gotten into the, that know. part of Arabia where the rest of the Frankincense Trail went and, uh, and poor Lehi would have gone. Wow. Uh, let, let's move on just a little bit. South of there, you may be interested to know that, uh, or southeast of there, there's a place called Didan. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's some ruins there called Al-Ula. And it's interesting, uh, you know, Lynn Hilton did uh -huh. some work in that area back in the 1970s. And he visited Al-Ula and uh, found out that the people that were living there, they were called the Dedanites. And all of a sudden, about 550, they changed their name from Dedanite to Lehianite, <laughs> which is an interesting thing. And so they're, today, they're known as Dedanites, but they're also known as Lehianites. 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 <laughs> At 550 BC, approximately, they, in that general area, huh? That's that's about when they think they changed wow. their name. Wow. Uh, it, it's amazing, all these little things. Uh -huh. And come to find out that valley that I used to live in, that I mentioned earlier in Taif, uh -huh. uh, that at one time was called the Lehianite Valley. Uh, you, know, you know, there's I think it's, what, Section 13? I don't know, I'm forgetting uh, the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about Lehi being, or not Lehi, Nephi being a missionary and that we should open up our mouths as Nephi did while he was in the wilderness. Uh -huh. And so in my mind, Lehi and Nephi had the op to opportunity to teach the gospel while they were in room for eight years in the wilderness. Well, they probably needed to trade with people and uh, and, and get uh, ac access to wells and to water and to uh, and, and possibly trade goods and so forth for food. Yes. Uh, this trail, this frankincense trail that we talked about, there are oases and springs that pop up ever so often in the mountains, mm -hmm. and whoever controls those springs controls the trade. And that's where I said before the Queen of Sheba really had control over a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and how she got her wealth. But each little tribe would be different. So Lehi and his group really had to get along with people. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, uh, there's a rule they have in, in Islam that says that we need to be like Abraham, and when you first meet a stranger, you're nice to him no matter what, even if you don't like him. Uh -huh. You have to be nice <laughs> to him. So now, so as they so they went down along the borders of the Red Sea, according to the to the record, then they turned east. Um, at some point in there, uh, um, Ishmael passes away, and it yes. says, that, and, and it said that he was buried in a particular place. Uh, that has that been? Uh, what 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 can you tell us about that place? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, this is probably the the most one one hundred percent evidence that the Book of Mormon is true. Uh, 
because in 1988, some German archaeologists were excavating a temple of the Queen of Sheba in a place called, uh, well, Marib, uh, Yemen. The temple was called the Baran Temple. And uh, in 1988, they found an altar there that happened to have the letters NHM inscribed on it. Now, Semitic languages uh, don't use vowels. They only use consonants. And so NHM is actually pronounced mayhem. And that was on a, one of the altars. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, Warren Ashton, when he read about that, he says, I've got to go see it. So he went to the Baran Temple, found two more altars with the word Nahum inscribed upon it. And it was right next to a big cemetery or burial location. Uh, even today, there's still thousands of graves there. Well, that is a 100% proof positive that that word Nahum, which uh, Nephi says the place was called Nahum, mm -hmm. uh, so it was known as before, and that temple had existed from the 7th century BC. So mm -hmm. it was there when Lehi and his family went through. <laughs> and actually, and so, there so, was no way that the prophet Joseph Smith could have known that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no way. Except by the way, by that, that uh, references 1 Nephi chapter 16, verse 33, or actually it's verse 34, says it came to pass that Ishmael died and was buried in the place which was called Nahum. And then if, you, if you'd like for some additional information in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon, we actually have a, a little sec section there from Warren Aston that, uh, that actually uh, talks about that. It's on page 31 in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon. And also you can see uh, a, a kind of a map here on page 30 in the annotated edition showing the approximate, as best as we know, route of uh, Lehi through the Saudi Arabian Peninsula um, going south you know, by the Red Sea and then, and then uh, turning east, um, approximately at Nahum or the, the NHM that's uh, on, the, on that altar that you can actually see a, a photo of, and then uh, and then they ended up end up uh, going over to uh, to what they called Bountiful. Let's uh, can you tell us a little bit about Bountiful? Okay, let me mention just a couple of things on the way to yeah, Bountiful. Oh yes, yeah. They they went after they turned east, and uh, Nephi says they went. Uh, more or less directly east from Nahum. And uh, on the way there, they would have crossed a portion of what is known as the Empty Quarter, or the Rubal Kali. Now this Empty Quarter is probably the largest true desert in the world, because it's nothing but shifting and moving sands. It's very desolate. The first Westerner to ever cross that was back in 1951, I believe it was. Uh, he, he got some Bedouin boys to help him, and they crossed that empty quarter. But it is desolate, very dry. Uh, and that was why Lehi and his family uh, had to eat raw meat, because there was no wood to make a fire, let alone, uh, you know, cook their food or anything like that. So they had to eat raw meat. Can I, can, I, can I mention something there? Because it, 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 later on in the Book of Mormon, the Nephites described the Lamanites as, as, as a, a large population of people who were eating nothing but raw meat. 
And I wanted, I wanted to maybe just uh, throw out another idea just for a second, and that is that, uh, the, nat- that the Native Americans on the plains, the Plains Indians actually ate uh, meat, but they, did, but they never cooked it either. They basically took it, cut it into strips, and let it dry in the sun, and today we call that jerky. So some people kind of get this impression, especially uh, younger kids or whatever, that they're kind of like kill an animal and it's like like dripping or whatever, you know, and they're eating that raw. It's probably more than likely they're talking about something more along the lines of jerky. But go ahead. I, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let me tell you a little story, if I may. Uh, Warren Ashton, uh, after he had found out about Nahum. He said, well, I'm going to travel east from here and see if I can locate Bountiful. And he traveled, he and his daughter Claire traveled all along the Omani coast and visited every inlet that he could find. And uh, there are three candidates uh, that have popped up. Uh, George Potter that we mentioned earlier, he favors a place called Kororri. Uh, by the way, the word Kor means inlet in Jabali, uh, in the mountain language. Uh, then there's Revel Phillips, a professor at BYU. He favors an inlet called Kormugsail. But uh, Warren Ashton uh, and his daughter found a, a location a little bit further to the west from those other two candidates called Kormugsail. And it was very lush and green inside. We have since uh, talked with a, a researcher, a doctor, Ali uh, Al-Shakri, who lives in, in Salala. And uh, we were asking him one day, what does the word mean? We know what core means. What does karfot mean? And he thought a few minutes and he said, well, it means the rains have come. And now there is plenty for everyone. And we said, you mean bountiful? And he said, yeah, that would be a good word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And who was that again that said that? Uh, His name is Dr. Ali Ahmed Al-Shari. Wow. And he lives in in Salala. Wow. Um, (laughs) A place of plenty. A place of plenty. Wow. Or bountiful. Wow. So anyway, that's what they decided on. And it's interesting, uh, these other two candidates, uh, Korori and Kormugsail, they will have one or two other requirements that are necessary. Like there has to be access from the desert. There has to be uh, yeah, what, what, what are some are, of those, uh, some of those uh, criterion to, to know if you're on the right trail, if you're in the right place as far, as far as Land Bountiful? Just some of the criterion that, that we look for, for the, for to find that out. Okay, well, taking Nephi's very words, he said, we called the place bountiful because of its much fruit and also wild honey. So there's two of them right there. They, of course, would have had to have fresh water, yeah. which is a scarcity on the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, they would have had to have ledges where Laman and Lemuel took Nephi to throw him off into the depths of the sea. Um, there, of course, there had to be a, a seaside there, a beach, uh, but, so they would have the ocean. But someplace they, put it, someplace they could actually build a ship without a problem. and uh, They right. probably had to, had to have ore, too. 
Yes, they had to have iron ore and they mm. had to have large trees. Yes. Uh, in doing some research, we found that there are large trees in Cork Carfolt. They're called, uh, whoops, I just had a mental block there. Uh, <laughs> we, we can cut that out. <laughs> all right, we're going to have to cut, cut it out. <laughs> I, had, I had it on my. Is it is it this uh, is it the tamarind tamarind tree? Yeah, there we go. The tamarind. I know it started with a T. <laughs> <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead and start from there. Okay, go ahead. Re uh, start. I'm glad you got better notes than I do. <laughs> well, it's in it's in the book. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, there are some large tamarind trees there. I've seen one tree, the largest one I've ever seen, was some 80 feet tall wow. and about eight feet in diameter. Oh. Now, unfortunately, that tree got hit by lightning and doesn't exist anymore, but there are plenty of trees there. Actually, uh, we had a botanist from Australia with us on one of our trips, and she located 130 tamarind trees wow. uh, in, in, the, in that valley. In the, even uh, even today? Carfolt. Even in our day? Oh, yes. Yeah. So there would yeah, have been clearly a lot more probably back in that time. <laughs> Yes. Uh, when we go there, we'll gather under a, a tamarind tree, pick up the pods. There's a kind of a breadfruit that is edible. Wow. And uh, I popped them in my mouth. They kind of taste like these Smarties or whatever the candy is that oh, really? the kids like. <laughs> They're that sweet, huh? They're that sweet. Well, it's kind of a sour sweet. Yeah. Hey, so uh, what, 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 what other fruit, up. what other fruit, and is there, what evidence is there for honey? Well, uh, one of my first trips there, I put a plate out with some honey on it to see if I could attract any bees. Within 30, me within 30 minutes, I had over uh, 40 bees on that plate. <laughs> so I knew there were bees there. And they had told us that up in the caves, the white things that we could see hanging down were probably beehives. Uh, but there's all kinds of fruit there and flowers and butterflies and doves. Uh, there are fig trees. Uh, my favorite are the date date palms. Lots of date palms in Cork Uh You know, I'm just trying to think of all the other foods that Different we've kinds seen of fruits. there. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the interesting things about that is is that the uh, right along the coastline there, it's very lush because of the Indian Ocean and the and the and the, the natural uh, you know. Uh, Air movement basically as it's coming off the Indian Ocean and comes across there and drops its uh, its rain there, uh, but then further on, like you say, it's you know it's just complete barren desert and pretty desolate. But uh, so so this is so this is your favorite uh, location then to be the, the the main candidate for the land bountiful. Uh, yes, talking about those trade winds that come across, they come yeah. off the, of Africa across the Indian Ocean. And then as soon as they hit the uh, the Arabian coast there, there are 2,000-foot cliffs. And so they have to dump their moisture to be able to get up over the cliffs. Yeah. And so there are two locations. Salala has a real green crescent about it, around it. Uh -huh. And in Salala, they grow pineapples, they grow bananas, coconuts. Almost tropical. trees on the beach. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's tropical. Wow. And and that's the way. It, and the other location is there at Corcarfold. The lushness and the greenery that's right there, are just nowhere else on the on the Arabian Peninsula. 
can can we address just for a second the uh, uh, I know there's been some some miraculous things that have happened as far as being able to go there and to do archaeological searches and so forth. Um, what what archaeologically has been found, and also um, I think one of the important aspects of this is that uh, Nephi said that he made tools, and uh, so there had to be some kind of iron or you know something that they could that they could smelt to make the tools with which to make the ship. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, those things? Yes, we have found ore there. Uh, actually, I picked up a rock on my first trip there. We brought it back and had it, had it assayed, analyzed, and everything. Uh-huh. And uh, it was determined uh, that it was 26% iron. <laughs> and I, we said, well, what does that mean? How much iron do you need to smell? And they said, oh, about 5%. Yeah. So... 26 percent iron plenty of iron uh, yeah plenty plenty of iron to do get the tools that he needed uh-huh. um, now what we're actually been doing there i'm i'm a member of an archaeological group uh, we've obtained permission from the omani government to travel there and to do we have an exclusive uh, authority to to dig there at Korkarfot. Nice. Uh, actually, it was preceded by a BYU dig many years ago uh, at Kormuk Sile. Um, but anyway, they love us over there. Uh, jokingly, that sometimes they uh, refer to where we go to do the dig as they refer to it as the Mormon Beach. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I heard I heard a a story about how. Um, there was one of the 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 leaders over there that uh, that you know weren't sure if they wanted to have a bunch of uh, you know Americans and, and and specifically you know Mormons over there doing a bunch of stuff and he asked a, a very uh, kind of pointed question and uh, and and was given a straight truthful answer and and uh, really changed the whole course of uh, of their conversation. Is that can you just elaborate on that just a little bit more? Yes, uh, what was happening, our uh, current uh, archaeologist, the head archaeologist, was meeting with the ministry, and he went, he took a couple of other archaeologists with him that were not members of the church, and he figured, well, we'll, we'll approach this from a, a, a worldly viewpoint in that we won't really bring up the church that much and so they were talking about how it would benefit oman and and history and everything and the guy says well uh he he threw a clue out but the guy or the head archaeologist didn't catch it the clue was are lehi and nephi the same person (laughs) and which he he should have dawned on him hey okay but anyway, he finally, the, the minister caught on or said, hey, we need to know exactly what your intentions are. Yes. And so he said, all right, we're here on behalf of our church as well as uh, secular learning, and we're going to accomplish two objectives. We think that our prophet Lehi built a ship at Carfold, and uh, we want to see if that's true. And finally, the minister said, okay, you can have your permit. Here's a permit for five years, and you can, we expect you to renew it five or six times. Nice. 
That is fantastic. Well, we need to we need to finish up here really quickly. But uh, so, any any other thoughts? Just uh, your your personal feelings about uh, the Book of Mormon and how how this research has has blessed your life and uh, increased your testimony and your knowledge of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Okay, can I finish up one thing? Oh, yes, on please, Kirk yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, we have uh, several friends over there. The the Omanis have been great. They've helped us. The, the Coast Guard comes out and makes sure that we don't have any problems. They've, they've really treated us well. Nice. And uh, uh, one of some of our friends over there, a family, we went to visit them one time, and their uncle was there, and he wanted to know what we were doing. So we told him that we believed that a prophet had, had come down uh, from Jerusalem with his family to build a ship. And his first reaction was, well, everyone knows that there are prophets at Carfote. <laughs> and we said, wow, are you, <laughs> you know, and we said, well, what, what happened to them? And he says, well, I don't know. They disappeared. Maybe they died. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't know that Carfote is still a sacred ground uh, to the Omanis. The, uh, we talked with some mountain people, and they said that uh, – their grandfather and their great-grandfather and their great-grandfather great-great-grandfather are all buried down in Carfold. And it's true, there are a lot of graves there. But uh, they revere it as a sacred place because prophets have been there. There's actually, let me tell you, there's some writing in a cave there uh, that uh, is kind of interesting. Part of the drawings... They're, they're pictographs, so they're painted on. Mm-hmm. One is it's of a tree with fruit on it. Uh, there's camels. There's an outline of a ship. A uh, lot of neat things there, but right next to it is some writing. And uh, there's some older writings that no one can read. Even this Dr. Alstari uh, couldn't read it. But above that old writing is some Arabic writing. And the Arabic writing says, we know the prophet also, and his name is Muhammad. (laughs) So we figure that that older writing, which is probably a, well, the modern name is Jabali, but it's it's a spoken language only, it's not a written language. So that's, they've lost the ability to write that language, but we feel it's in that language where they talk about a prophet. And so when later uh, Islam comes into the picture, then they said, well, it's probably Muhammad. <laughs> yeah, we have <laughs> a prophet <wasn't>. as well. <laughs> yeah, but there are a lot of things like that. We could go into the languages. We could go into our experiences that we've had there. Uh, oh, by the way, I was going to mention that the, the prophet Job is buried in Salalah. Uh, another oh. prophet, Salah, we don't know who Salah is. But uh, he's also buried in. So the Omanis call themselves the land of the prophets. Uh, wow. They're, they're cool people, neat people to work with. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're interested to know what their true roots really are. Now, as far as uh, how important this evidence is to me, the prophet Joseph Smith at one time said that the world will prove that Joseph Smith is a true prophet. Uh, let me let me say it again. Yeah, eventually the world will prove that Joseph Smith is a true prophet 
by circumstantial evidence. During these last 25 or 30 years, there have been three major discoveries. The major one being Nahum being discovered in Yemen. Uh, The Valley of Lemuel is the second one up, up by the Red Sea. And of course now bountiful down on the Indian Ocean. Uh, we feel that that mountain language that I told you about, Jabali, we feel that has uh, indications that we're on the right track. When we first met with some friends over there, we asked them what they called this ocean out here to see if they would say anything like Eriantum. And they said, yes, in Jabali, that is Erimnim. And we thought, wow, <laughs> my nephew just about fell off his chair. He was so surprised. And uh, so we got a Book of Mormon in Arabic. And I, I showed this young lady that was uh, speaking to us and telling us this. I said, this is the, the explanation. Lehi coming to Bountiful and calling it Anthem and everything. And she looked at it and looked up at me and she said, is this your sacred book? Is this your holy book? And I said, yes, it is. And she says, well, it's, it's written in the language of the Holy Quran. And so she could feel the spirit of the Book of Mormon, even on a brief encounter on a, the balcony of a hotel in Salala. Wow. Uh, by, by the way, I was, gonna, I was just going to mention that the, uh, the the quote that you just did about Joseph Smith is actually on page uh, XXV, which would be 25, in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon. It says, uh, we cannot but think the Lord has a hand in bringing to pass his strange act and proving the Book of Mormon true in the eyes of all the people. It will be as it ever has been. The world will prove Joseph Smith a true prophet by circumstantial evidence and experiments as they did Moses and Elijah. That's from the Times and Seasons, 15th of September, 1842, page 99, or 922. So that is a wow. pretty impressive, uh, I love that, that, that quote. Okay. Uh, is what it is, this uh, uh, Dr. Al-Sharvi uh, has done a, I'm, I'm trying to get some verses here pulled up, but uh, has translated some words of Jabali, because it's an unwritten language, uh, into English. Uh, by the way, I need to tell you that uh, Dr. Al-Shari, uh, in trying to discover what, uh, you know, what are some of the symbols or what the alphabet may have been, the characters that they may have used ancient language he's gone around and picked up all these different symbols from the rock art in oman and he came to the united states about 15 years ago and uh met with a guy by his last name was leonard i have to look it up but they went and visited some uh a site in eastern colorado and by the way dr alshari had located or figured out there were 33 characters that probably make up this ancient language. And when they went to Colorado, they found 32 of those 33 identical characters. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that says a lot right there. Yeah. But, uh, 
the neat thing of it was in Abraham chapter 3, verse 13, I believe it is, there, uh, down the second second sentence there, and he said unto me, Koko, which is star. The Jabali word for star is kokob. Exactly it is as it is huh. in the Pearl of Great Price. That's cool. Very Isn't nice. Isn't it? Yeah, now, now listen, uh, so a couple of other quick things. So um, what? Um, where can someone go to find further information? If, if, this, uh, if, if uh, our, someone in our audience is excited about learning more about this, uh, what kind of resources are there? And here in back of me, our uh, Potter's book, uh, Warren Ashton's book, Lynn Hilton's book, uh, Ken, Ken Brown's book. Okay. All of these uh, books talk about uh, what is happening in Oman in the land bountiful. Wow. Uh, actually, there was just an article in uh, BYU Studies by Warren Ashton about the trail that that uh, Lehi would have taken. Uh-huh. And uh, and it's interesting, you know, he says that there are two places that have, been, that have been preserved, the Valley of Lemuel and Bountiful are two places that have been relatively undisturbed over 2,600 years and preserved by the hand of the Lord, we feel, so that this evidence could come forth. You bet. And uh, this, this latest... BYU Studies uh, book gives more information on that. So, Brent, uh, we, we've talked about the, uh, the fruit and, and so forth, but, but we didn't have a chance yet to talk about the honey. What evidence is there over in that area, in the Land Bountiful area, for honey? Okay, uh, let me relate a little story, if I may. <laughs> like I said, we've made some wonderful friends over there. Uh, one of our boatmen is a guy by the name of Sala. And every morning, they would pick us up in a little village on the seacoast there called Dalkut. And they would take us a half hour up the coast and run us into the beach. And we would get out, we'd work all day, and then they would be there to uh, bring us back in the evening. Well, Sala this one time said, I want to show you where I used to live when I was a little boy here in Carfot, and uh, I want to take you to the cave that my dad and I lived in after the monsoons had come and we would graze our goats and our cattle here. And we said, okay, and so we, the very last day that we were there, then uh, we took a, a little trip up into the wadi, up into the Carfot there, uh, walked across the marshes and walked up into a cave and on the way I started asking him about bees because we had seen a little small maybe one one and a half inch beehive that was just starting in a tree and uh, so I asked him about it and, and I said by the way how do you say bees in Jabali and uh, he said uh, no now I'm having a mental block again uh, <laughs> Oh, Badish. That's what it is. He said, uh, Badish. And I said, uh, say that again, please. And he said, it's spelled B-D-S-H, just like it sounds. <laughs> uh-huh. And and so we went on and 
and we looked up in the cave, and it was a two-story cave where you go in the bottom where the animals can see and everything. You could go up some stairs that had been made, and you get out, come out on the second level. And it had bedrooms up there. It had a little fenced-in area wow. for the, the baby goats and everything. And it was absolutely perfect. And I, it had dawned on me right then, but this was about the 1st of April. And uh, we had been working in the hot, hot sun. And so to get in the coolness of that cave was like going to heaven. And I thought, this has got to be the place. This is where Lehi and Sariah would have sat while they washed their sons down by that big boulder that's in the middle of the wadi, in the middle of the lagoon, building their ship right there. And uh, so, you know, we just had a really enjoyable time. We had an arch or a geologist with us. And he wanted to go on up the wadi a little further to check for more iron. And we came back about an hour later, and Sala came up to me, and he says, hey, I've got a surprise. And I said, okay, what is it? He said, first of all, does anybody have a knife? And I, I had one, so I handed him the knife. And he cut out a palm, out of a palm frond. He took all the leaves and everything off, so it was just a stick. And then he split that stick about three-quarters of the way down. And then he hunted for a little piece of string. He found one. And then we took off through the trees that were there in the in Carfold. And all of a sudden, we came around. And up in a short tree, there was a great big round beehive. It was about three inches thick, three or four inches thick, and about 12 inches in diameter. And he said, would you like to taste some honey? And we said, of course, yes. And uh, so he climbs up this tree without any protection whatsoever, climbs up in the tree and begins to knock the deep beehive down or uh, take it from its anchor on the, on the tree limb. And of course the bees were getting mad. So I back up a little bit, but I am photographing it or videoing it. <laughs> and, uh, and he, he gets it down and then he takes that knife and cuts off the top one-third of the beehive. And he throws that one-third of the beehive down to us. We catch it, but we didn't want to be close because those bees, you know, there were hundreds, thousands of bees all over him. And we thought, man, this guy's not going to live. And he took that stick that he had gotten and prepared, clamped it on the top of the bottom two-thirds of the beehive, and then tied the string on one end so it wouldn't come loose, and placed it back up in the tree so the hive would continue to survive. And then he came down and opened up that honeycomb, and we had wild honey dripping fingers, our fingers, and but we said, Sala, how did you do that without getting stung? And he nonchalantly said, oh, these bees don't sting. <laughs> And we had never heard of anything like that. Non-standing bees. Said, no. Yeah, those. He said the bees up in the in the mountains, they're a little bit bigger and they will sting you, but these down here in Carfolk won't sting. And wow. so we were sitting there under uh, a wild beehive, eating honey in in the middle of Bountiful. <laughs> 
just completely enjoying ourselves. <laughs> what a great story. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when Nephi says, and we call the place bountiful because of its much fruit and also wild honey. Wild honey. Well, Brent, yes. listen, it's been a, been a pleasure. Was there any, any other things you wanted to finish up with? or uh... Uh, Just to say, even, even if it turns out that we may be wrong on Bountiful, uh-huh. but the more we go there, the more I'm convinced that it's the right location. Yeah. Uh, my testimony of the Book of Mormon is firm. But even as Elder Holland says, uh, physical evidence or physical proof strengthens our testimonies absolutely and i feel that's what's happened because as i grow older as i have these experiences my love for the book of mormon my admiration for the prophet joseph smith has only increased and i'm sure it will continue to do so as more and more evidence is brought to light about his calling as a prophet and the truthfulness of the book of mormon well said thank you brent you have a no no no, uh, just have a nice trip. I know, I know that you're going to be uh, going back again here just in the next uh, few weeks. So uh, have a safe trip and come back and tell us all about it. Thank you for listening to the Book of Mormon Evidence Podcast. If you enjoyed this Come Follow Me supplemental study, click the like button or share it with your friends. Be sure to go to bookofmormonevidence.org or firmfoundationexpo.org where you can buy tickets to the upcoming Firm Foundation Expo held Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, April 9th, 10th, and 11th in Sandy, Utah. There will be three education-packed days, 80 distinguished speakers, 150 presentations and classes on Book of Mormon research, signs of the times, science and religion, self-reliance and health, constitutional studies, and world events.